Hello, Andy here. Thanks for tuning in to another special edition of Down the Line. In this episode, AJ is talking to Christopher Gard, who played Flight Lieutenant Peter Romsey, the title character of the Series 1 episode Lost Sheep. Christopher is a familiar face to anyone who watched TV during the 70s, 80s and 90s, appearing in scores of popular television drama series and several films. Some highlights include David Copperfield, in which he played the young David, Pip in Great Expectations, the ill-fated Marcellus in I, Claudius, Ferdinand in the BBC Shakespeare version of The Tempest, Marius in the 1978 TV production of Les Miserables, Jim Hawkins in Return to Treasure Island, Philip Ashley in the period drama My Cousin Rachel, Ken Hodges in Casualty, and roles in both Joe's Ark and Black Eyes for Dennis Potter. Guard guested in numerous other TV dramas, including Dixon of Doc Green, The Duchess of Duke Street, Shoestring, The Professionals, Lovejoy and Poirot. He also memorably voiced Frodo Baggins in the animated Lord of the Rings, and played Bellboy in the Doctor Who story The Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Christopher is also an accomplished musician. He has been a member of several successful bands and has a lifelong passion for songwriting. Over to AJ. Today I'm joined by a man of many talents. He's an actor, musician and artist and can now add writer to the mix as his autobiography was released earlier this year. His first on-screen appearance was at 12 in David Copperfield. He's also known for roles such as I, Claudius and the voice of Frodo in the animated Lord of the Rings. But we're here today to talk about your role as Flight Lieutenant Peter Romsey in the episode Lost Sheep of Secret Army. And I welcome to the podcast Christopher Gard. Thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm okay. I'm okay. <laughs> I've had a bit of a cold and uh, I'm a bit asthmatic, as I believe you are as well. So I've been, um, yeah, but I'm going to rise above that, uh, as you have to do. Uh, so, uh, yeah, when I'm playing Peter Bromsey, I'm not asthmatic. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm somebody else, which is kind of how it works. So, yeah, ask me a question. Well, I'd love to um, start with getting the standard questions, really, you know, getting the role. What was that process like? Did you have to audition or were you invited to play the part? Yeah, I mean, at that time, both my brother Dominic and I, although we weren't full time actors, we were at Latimer Upper School, carrying on towards A-levels and uni and all that stuff. We'd started young and so we'd get calls, you know, because we'd already made a bit of an impact, been lucky enough to get a role like David Copperfield, which... I think, as you know, he grew up into a young, sir, not Sir Ben, but Ian McKellen. He was 26. And uh, I worked with some amazing people. So I was getting offered things. And as indeed was my brother, uh, after he'd won a BAFTA for the best newcomer in the go-between. And we were like, oh, get a, one of the guard boys. you know. So there was a bit of that going on. So when I left school, there was quite a lot of work coming in, both in television and film. Peter Romsey was, I believe, offered to me. But that wasn't to say you didn't auditions sometimes it depended really on the circumstances auditions back then were very different you'd go up to threshold house at the bbc and the director was really the governor there were all these wonderful very much um bespoke television directors people like uh, herbie wise who directed like claudius um i worked a couple of times uh pierce haggard who was um, pens from heaven these were guys who really cut their teeth in television and that was what they did best and it was when tv was usually a mix of pre-recorded film like on david copperfield 
we shot it all in eight mil, all the pre-recording stuff. So we went out to Suffolk and all very grainy. And then you'd go into the studio at Lime Grove or wherever. And uh, because it was expensive to film this stuff uh, then back then on tape, they wanted as few edit points as possible. So you'd have all the telecine lined up and all these sets all over the place with real donkeys and <laughs> fake grass and you know, fire buckets and firemen and makeup people chasing you around. And right, you just have to get from one set to another, grab my coat, grab my hat, you know, make the second, second spot, and you'd be there, <sighs> change of mood, um, and pretending you're enjoying this sickly cold soup with a skin on top that Dame Flora Robson is serving to you while she spits into your eyes because she had such perfect diction. And you, of course, this is what an actor really does. It's not learning the lines, it's pretending you're enjoying sickly cold <laughs> soup because you haven't eaten for two and a half days and you're so pleased to see your aunt who's spitting in your eyes. That's <laughs> but the, they drop the telecine in as you move from set to set, you see, and run telecine and off you'd go. It was exciting. It was like a mix of filming and theatre. All those shows back then tended to be made like that. Mm. So you had a theatricality. And always the possibility of things going wrong. You'd have these five robotic, huge, great cameras chasing you around, all very carefully choreographed. Basically, you just go for it. You have to hit your mark, say your lines, don't get a boom shadow across your face. And yeah. And then at the end, the director would run down from the gallery and say, yeah, well done. And you'd, say, <laughs> you'd get a kind of treble, treble hit of achievement because it was partly the, the art, partly the, the te technical side of it. Mm. And part of the fact that um, I can't remember the third thing, but just that we've got it done at all, you know, long answer to your question. But a fantastic and, and very interesting answer. I really wish I could hop into a time machine and, you know, be a little pair of eyes on the wall, kind of looking at that process. It sounds so interesting. And speaking to the theatrical quality of TV shows in that time period, what was the um, rehearsal period like for you? Well, do you know what? Although I can, that, that, uh, canteen on the top floor of the Acton Hilton was extraordinary. I mean, you'd, I, I, I'd sort of describe it a bit in my book, there'd be this miasma of, of course, smoke, Eric Morecambe's pipe, Hans People, Sir John Gielgud, uh, canteen ladies dishing up the steaming cabbage. It was all this great big world of chatting, oh, yes, well, I saw bit of crap, and then someone else being telling a joke they've told 10 times before. And then in the summer, there'd be people out on the balcony looking out over, over London, and it was just a mishmash of, of comedy, of drama, of dance. You know, David Bowie I saw once going up in the lift. He was making a, a play up there. I can't remember which one it was, but it was an extraordinary combination. And I and so I'm only saying all this because I was up there a lot. And I and sometimes usually you'd have a rehearsal period of anything up to a couple of weeks, I suppose. And all you would have would be holes marking corners of sets probably know all this, yeah, just in these great big bespoke rooms and then tape on the floor roughly and maybe the odd prop if it was particularly relevant. And on a show that lasted maybe half an hour, you'd probably have a week of that. And then on the, the day before you went into the studio, in would come <laughs> all these guys with you know designers and mainly cameramen with clipboards making notes and working out exactly how they were going to shoot it and where they were going to be and how and these were the clipboards that would end up actually on their cameras as the cameras moved around. So the, the relationship between these technical people and the actors was absolutely crucial. It was like dancing with them. You don't know they're there. 
but they they damn well are, <laughs> you know, on the day. So then when you've done all that, and it's quite exciting when you do it for the technical guys, you do it inevitably slightly differently, I think. Maybe you try a bit harder. I don't know what it is. But then, yeah, and then you go in and you spend all day sort of getting the lighting right and blocking it. And then you usually film it quite fast, like I was saying, keep, keeping editing points to a minimum. Although that evolved, and I think towards, as we went through the 70s and 80s, there were more edits, more, more stops for the camera, I think, probably because the whole process became less expensive. So those, those edit points were not as important. But I, I'm still not answering your question. And how <laughs> I, I, I remember the first thing we did was the filming. So I'm guessing we must have gone to France first and done all the location stuff. Oh, so did you actually go then abroad? You didn't do the, the location filming in England? Well, we actually went to France. Paul Annette wanted the real thing, you know. I think he was a bit of a... I, I think he spoke rather good French, as I recall. I think he wanted to, to demonstrate his Anglo-Franco flair, <laughs> move seamlessly between the two cultures and directing at the same time and standing on his head and drinking wine all at the same time. <laughs> so, uh, no, we definitely went out there, yeah. Um, I'd just become a dad around that time, a young dad, and I, just like Peter Romsey, in fact. And um, life was, it, it was great, but it was you know, kind of hectic, toing, froing and missing the family and uh, but you're right in so much as very often you're 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 the, you're the location manager you look at the script and you go we really don't need to go to France that, <laughs> that, 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 that. I mean curiously when I did return to Treasure Island and we filmed in Jamaica for seven weeks and Al Maria for five we ended up the, the scheduling was so tight okay we're going to drop that scene and move to the next location so we had this huge list of scenes that were getting dropped, which could quite easily have been scheduled for the UK in the first place. You know, so we ended up in Barry Dock, you know, four months after we'd done the original scene, for example, me and Brian Blessed, with a blue filter on the lens, <laughs> freezing cold, all sweated up with salt on our faces, to match this scene we'd done in Jamaica when it was 90 degrees and very warm. And you don't, you don't notice, you don't see the joint. So that's one of the real challenges um, for producers and for you know people who design the the whole the whole route of shooting is that it it is it is time and money, and I think using your imagination, I said we could have shot a lot of that in Cornwall. Yeah. But sometimes execs sort of think, hey, let's go to Jamaica. <laughs> and do you have any memories then of filming in France? Whereabouts in France were you? Can you you remember? Yeah, no, you see, you've really got me again. I don't actually remember where we were. And this is awful because I've sort of pride myself on my memory of a lot of this stuff. And when I was writing the book, so much was coming back to me. It was just a bit of a an intense time around then. I, I'm, I'm thinking we were in northern France, but we, I can see the hotel. I remember a makeup girl giving me a mogadon because I didn't sleep at all the first night. I'd never used a sleeping pill before. I slept like a baby and I had such a lovely day. Because <laughs> I'd had a mug of dog. But I, I honestly, I can see the filming. I can see people's faces. I, where we were is a bit of a blur. And I haven't researched it because I thought, well, that's cheating. And so are your memories then of working on, on set clearer? Do you have any memories of filming those scenes? I, I, do, I do have one or two, yeah. I mean, Peter Barkworth, as you may know, was he was very revered time you know he wrote books about acting and he was very much regarded as one of the 
I don't know, a generation of sort of, I don't know how you describe it, post-Olivier, sort of modern, but with a lot of um, old virtues, as it were. So I felt quite, I think we all felt, oh, we're working with Peter Barkworth. I mean, what difference that really makes, I don't know, because you're basically both there to pretend to be somebody else and say the lines you're given to say uh, as truthfully uh, and as meaningfully as possible. <laughs> so, you know, but he was very charming and I, I, I thought he nuanced that whole. I, when I watched it again recently, I, I was far more aware of the awkwardness in his relationship with his wife and her sort of maternal kind of affection towards Peter Romsey. And his rather, I think almost retrospectively, I'd say crass obliviousness to that. Yes, absolutely, yeah. And, and I, I, as I was saying earlier to you when we were first chatting, I, I, got, I played quite a lot, not exclusively, but of these sort of intense, very English people who often were, were bred and brought up in such a, a specific way that they often would have a, at the same time as being charming and elegant, they would have a, an awkwardness and an, and an unawareness of how the other half live or how other people's lives might be. So that, that ignorance, that naivety feeds into almost something that can become a rudeness. Yes. When I played Wilfred in Wilfred and Eileen on the BBC, very similar sort of setup, except that was a two hour film really with Judy Bowker. And the character I played in that was a real man called Wilfred Willett, who was a soldier in World War I. Again, it required that, you have to remember these guys were coming straight from public school, straight into the trenches or straight into an air, airplane or whatever. And they, they haven't really learned about life. So you learn about killing in, a, in a, an oblivious sort of way before you learn about the, the realities of, of everything else. And you play that so perfectly. It's almost painful to watch uh, your character as he's just giving away all the secrets about the radio and his work that he's been doing, developing that new technology. And yeah, he's just so not street smart, is he? I know, you could say, what a bloody idiot, you know. But I quite, I quite, because I wasn't really like that at all. But I just, <laughs> I mean, my brother, I mean, as, as somebody said, he said, oh, you're, the, you're the poshest turn on television. And I'm going, well, what? But I suppose one just gets into a certain niche and quite a few of these characters came up, which I played. And of course, I played all sorts. It was not at all just those types. But I just seemed to have a knack of playing these slightly uptight twats. <laughs> charming, charming, terribly well-meaning, but arguably quite, you know, they're kind of annoying. Yeah. There's all sorts of interesting links in, in Secret Army, people I knew anyway. Tell me about those. Well, Jan Francis. I, I worked with Jan on a show called Village Hall, which was made by Granada. It was about couples meeting at a badminton club and arguing with each other, as far as I remember. It was sort of comedic drama. Joan Carr played my wife. I can't remember who played Jan's husband. But yeah, and no, I knew her. She was one of many people. One would just cross paths with, you know, and say hello and have a chat. And uh, Bernard Hepton, of course, was a very good family friend. He was a very good friend of my mum. Oh, right. Yes, because, of course, your parents... So I, I did read your book before um, before today, and, yes, your parents were, were both actors. Yeah, and writers as well. And writers as well, yeah. So the connections were kind of quite far... You know, they were, they were yeah, far flung in a way. But Bernard used to come round quite often of an evening and just chat with mum... But this was after mum and dad were no I mean, dad had left home. And um, and Bernard, I think, I don't know, I think he was maybe just a bit lonesome and 
he just enjoyed mum's company. It was all uh, you know, completely platonic, as far as I know. But he was a lovely presence in the house, very serious man, a serious, reflective, thoughtful person who also directed as well, I believe. And uh, Yeah, and how interesting then. So how old would you have been at this time when Bernard Hepton was coming to visit and spending time in the home? Well, I suppose, I think he and his wife, was she called Nancy? I think so. She was, they were a couple among a few who mum would have round for dinner or, you know, have an evening, a musical soiree or something. It wouldn't always be actors or writers. It could be anybody, really. But Richard Briers lived just two doors up the road from us with his wife, Annie. So he used to, he'd pop round if something was going on. and. Dennis Quilly, the actor, and his wife Stella, you know, and Bernard and Nancy, and there were just this little gaggle of people, you know, who might turn up. But when Mum and Dad split up, Bernard, I think, well, he just continued to pop round on his own for company and solace and whatever else. And they just, I suppose I was, what, I was 15 when Dad left. So, I mean, I'd have been younger when I first knew Bernard. Yeah. But then, yeah, that was probably between the age of sort of 15 and, and 19, something like that. Wow, how fascinating. Yeah, of course, it makes it makes complete sense. If your parents are already in that world and knowing those people, of course, you would grow up with people coming round. Yeah, yeah. And, and really, you know, that's why I got was asked to play David Copperfield or they were interested in me. And again, with my brother with the Govertine, we weren't, we weren't little boys saying, oh, please, please, can I be an actor too? Because... If your parents are actors, it's a little bit like if your dad's a blacksmith, you see the realities of, of uh, bad-tempered horses, you know. So that's a bit how it is. You, you see the good times and the bad times. And although although acting intrigued me as, as a craft, as a job, and I was very pleased to, to play David Copperfield. It wasn't make or break for me, you know. And I, think, I think Dom felt the same. And that was very much mum's attitude was that, when she went back out to work more full time after dad left, she wrote a, a TV show um, called Kids from 47A, a couple of series. She was playing Mary in Not in Front of the Children with Wendy Craig. Then she played Amy in Black Beauty, the permanent housekeeper character, which, um, I mean, that kept us all in, um, in you know, not in luxury, but it, it kept the wolf from the door for a couple of years. So, um, but mum's, you know, it was like, Yes, she did enjoy the, the company of other actors and she enjoyed the whole process of acting, but she was also a poet, published poet, a very and loved her own company and liked yeah, being creative, which is very much like me. I, I, I'm, 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 people say, oh, you're an extrovert, you're so sociable and all this. I'm going, yeah, well, I can be, but I can also spend hours you know, and days just reflecting and writing and and thinking and yeah particularly being creative I love making something out of nothing when you're an actor you have to wait until somebody gives you some lines to say and that can be very frustrating so you need other things to do yeah oh, so interesting oh well thank you for sharing those um those memories just to uh, bring things back to Secret Army a little bit what was it like working with people like Christopher Neem Michael Culver and when you were filming and you got to go into the iconic Candide set as well you got to go into the back room of the Candide what was that like oh yes I did well it was a set really it was a it was a place you know I don't remember it I think very often sets kind of you meet them on your own on a set is almost like another actor because you have to work within them and respond of them, as it were. So uh, there's often not a lot of time to 
to think about those things. It's like, okay, can we have you now, Chris? And, you know, just pop into makeup and we'll see you in a second in bed a little bit. Do you want to take lunch now? And then the other one, then the other runner says, um, Chris, we're going to need you before lunch. I said, well, he just says, you're never going to need you before lunch. Yeah, okay, got it. You know, chaos falls. I don't mind. Uh, just, just, <laughs> just keep hopping up and down and all will be well. Unfortunately, the sets do tend to stay in one place. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Christopher Neem, I, I had that early, early scene with him. Um, again, he seems sweet. You know, I don't remember having powerful feelings about him one way or the other, to be honest. No, he was, he was very, very sweet. And he always struck me as being quite, I worked with Jeremy Irons um, for a, a few months at one time. And Christopher Neem had, a, for me, had a similar sort of drive like Jeremy. It was a very sort of, I don't know, a strength and an and a upstandingness and an ability to, yeah, to drive scenes along, which is, a, which is a strength and a quality. And yeah, he had a sort of breeziness about him, sweeping his hair back. <laughs> he had a way. He had a way of sweeping. He could sweep into a room and sweep his hair back all at the same time. And that is a wrong You don't learn that at Rada. Not that I'd know because I didn't go. <laughs> but no, I mean, as I say, I didn't get to know him personally particularly, but but always yeah. he seemed absolutely absolutely delightful. No, no, no problems there. Do you have any memories of being directed by Paul Annett? What was he like to work with as a director? I, I don't remember him as one of those directors who sort of gets in your face and owns everything you do. There was a certain breed of director who would almost, if you came up with something, a way of doing something, or they would immediately kind of own it and say, ah, I just had an idea. Chris, why didn't you do that? You think, well, I just bloody did that, you know. But here's the official version in front of the film group. I mean, that's fine. You know, director's there to, 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 have, to lead, and I, I understand that. But um, all I remember being more sotto, gentler, just, you know, feeding you into stuff, telling you as much as you needed to know without giving a performance of, here am I, the director, directing the actor. I hope you're all listening and watching, when it's not necessarily useful. I mean, Ken, the wonderful Ken Colley, who I've worked with a couple of times, of a director who shall, I think, remain nameless for now, he just said, he said, don't do anything he says. He said, don't do anything he says. He said, don't listen to him. <laughs> so just act, you know. And so you would have these directors sometimes. This isn't Paul. Yes. But they, they this idea of going into all these, these backstories of everybody, like your dad was a, an 18th century candle maker or whatever. <laughs> Is that really going to make a difference to the speed at which you jump on a horse and gallop into the distance? I don't think. So sometimes all that information can be useful and it can feed into what you do. But I have known situations where that there's too much emphasis placed on that. Yeah. And also, if I might say, you know, an actor doesn't necessarily have to be incredibly intellectual or any of those things. I mean, it's more about instinct and about and also just the camera just likes you. Yeah. If you've got, if you've got a good script and a director who gives you enough information and a good team doing what they need to do, then, then the rest should be relatively straightforward. And that's what I remember about Paul. He, he seemed to be, yeah, he was just making sure the ship was, you know, progressing happily through the water. And he had a kind of, I don't know what you describe it as, a sort of flair, a flair, a kind of an ego. I don't mean, not saying that's a bad thing, but, um. Yeah, he was sort of quiet, 
stylish, but as a director, I thought he just gave you enough what you needed. And that's really important because mm. you can be drained dry by it being, as I say, by it being overfed. Yeah, the other kind of director you mentioned sounds like a, a bit of a nightmare that would get quite annoying by the end of the day. <laughs> or the or the end of the six months. Yeah. <laughs> so um, you said you watched your episode of Secret Army recently. What was it like revisiting it? Very strange. As I was saying before, you know, I did play a lot of these slightly uptight, annoying characters. And I, I really had forgotten, what was I, 24 or something? 25? I'd forgotten quite how precise and, and nervous and, and um, all those things that I used to play on. I made it sort of part of a certain type of persona that people seem to like. And so that took me slightly by surprise, although I have chanced on other things I did around the same time again, where I'm going, oh my God, fathers, <laughs> that clips little voice, you know, and when occasionally I allow myself to drop into a slightly lower register, I don't know whether it was partly because I was playing a bit younger than I really was a lot of the time, some of the things I did. So I, I was interpreting youth as being a bit of a twat, which is a rather, <laughs> I don't really think that's a good idea. <laughs> but but it's also the, your, the era, a very different era. Of course, yeah. So generally speaking, I was very, not surprised, but pleasantly, yeah, I, I liked what I saw. I thought, some of most of the performances in that piece are very, very good. There's a real confidence and intent around the concept of the show, the making of the show, the way it was all put together, even down to the very dramatic music at the beginning, you know, in the end. It's sort of saying, this is important and you will watch this. And the underlying fearfulness, that obviously, that was existing in that time with with spies and nobody knows who's thinking what and whether they're goodies or baddies or so I think all those those elements in that episode were particularly well scripted I think the way everybody yeah just created that that balance between genuine physical danger and a kind of a psychological and emotional tension mm. I thought it was good no, I mean, apart from me, I've never been able to watch myself very easily. Oh, really? Well, occasionally I'll see the odd thing, you know, and I'll go like, oh, well, that wasn't too bad. So maybe when it aired, you know, when it first aired, you wouldn't have sat down to watch it? Would you have just left it? Not not necessarily. I tend to sort of like look at it with one eye open and maybe creep up right. occasionally. You, first of all, you say, I'm not, I can't be asked to watch this. And then you, you actually, you do watch it. So, yeah, and I, I mean, the Duchess of Duke Street was another one around that time. I played a blind soldier who'd been sh lost his sight in the war, and I played my own piano piece of Chopin Nocturne. And, yeah, he, he was rather sad and sweet chap. But, I mean, that I watched again quite recently because it's all over YouTube. And occasionally I do just, you know, I get in the mood. I think, I'm going to have a sneaky look and see, and see what I think. You know, I, I don't know what the word is. I don't like the word proud, but I, I, I'm glad that I can watch all that stuff now and admire the body of work without necessarily admiring me. And I was really struck by something that you said when we were just chatting before we started recording. And you said, in a way, everything is now because of that availability of things. But you just phrased it in such a beautiful way. Everything, in a way, everything is now. Well, yeah, it does. And as we said, it's particularly because of, partly because of the memory, 
um, with my memory is full. I haven't demonstrated that terribly well about Secret Army, but when I was writing the book, I was astounded by some of the things that were coming back. And, and once you've started that process, it, it, it happens more and more. But then, of course, we have got YouTube and we've got social media and we've got all the digital uh, stuff available and things crop up all the time to remind us. So how much is, how much is real and how much is second generation memory, as it were, it, it's hard to know. But I think first generation memory always comes with a full range of, of sense, sensual things, you know, like obviously not even it's kind of sometimes beyond smell sight sound touch it's a sort of like a an aura you almost feel that other dimension that we feel in life sometimes and it's hard hard to know exactly what it is but it, it's a it's it would be a smell except it's not a smell it's something else and I think that leads kind of nicely on to talking um about your book which would be quite nice to let listeners know about did you want to talk about its origins well you know I get chatting sometimes about things that have happened to me as an actor and memories and people have said before oh you must write all this down you must write all this down and I sort of think well a I prefer chatting old style you know before most people could read hundreds of years ago that was the way you did it you just preferably with a bit of bit of rhyme and a bit of rhythm as well and you know I'd write songs so writing songs is something which is close to my heart and it's a form of communication I prefer in a way to, to writing, although I come from a literary family and um, I, I can write, you know. I mean, I, somebody said to me the other day, or oh, did you get a ghostwriter for this? And I, and I said, well, why? I said, no, 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 I can do this. You know, this is what I, I do. I have a voice, so I wouldn't have done it if I didn't feel I wanted to make something that to me at any rate is special. And I, I think what I've achieved is to create this kind of kaleidoscope of ideas and events which are partly about the theatre and the cinema and all these famous people I've worked with and Brett Blessed and Julie Christie and Ian McKellen and John Hurt. You know, the list goes on and on and on. And some of the stories are quite funny, but it's that the people I was asked to write about. But I thought, well, I'm not going to, you know, I, 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 I'm going to devote at least one whole chapter to our psychotic Jack Russell dog Jeeves because people say, tell a Jeeves story, tell a Jeeves story, just as often as they might say, tell a Liz Taylor story. I would have said the Liz Taylor stories and the Jeeves stories are kind of neck and neck in terms of the way they rock my boat because there's some hilarious stuff about her. I mean, quite unbelievable, really, the things that went on. And, um, you know, people imagine it's all going to be very sort of sexy and all that. Not really. It's just she was just <laughs> just a very funny lady and very interesting. We got to know her quite well. And um, so, yeah, it's really full of stuff that as I was writing, I was thinking, I was mapping it out as I went along. I think I must write about that. That's going to be there and that's going to be there. But it wasn't done in a linear way. So I wanted to do it. Somebody said it was like a cross between sort of stand-up, journalists, and um, what was the other thing? I can't remember. But yeah, I think I do employ more. Somebody said uh, James Joyce, John Betjeman, and Eddie Izzard. What a compliment. I mean, how sweet, you know, James Joyce in a stream of consciousness, John Betjeman, rather charming Englishness, you know, maybe, and, and uh, wit. And then Eddie Izzard, method in the madness, but seemingly just in the moment all the time. So I called the book, and then it was now, going back to what you said, in so much as it always is now, that's all we've got. And, you know, however desperately we might try to rationalise what just happened, it's invariably a waste of time because we never learn from it anyway. <laughs> and if we are going to learn from it, we learn from it subconsciously. 
rather than giving us some idea of how to proceed over the next cliff top like a bunch of lemmings without any idea what we're actually doing. And that's what I've, again, what I've tried, I've tried to make the book fit, give it tensile strength so it feels, you feel the power of the danger and the courage and the humour of now. And um, just to let listeners know um, that you can buy and then it was now on Amazon and you can buy it in different formats as well, can't you? You can buy it digitally or on yeah, yeah, it's it's up there now. There was a pre a pre order version which I signed some copies of that uh, went with a slightly different design, and uh, so that that all went out a few months ago. But since then, it's been taken over by AUK, which is a different distributor. When I read through, I was quite delighted to find. So, so uh, you mentioned at one point a Doctor Who event in the Wirral, and it was a reunion of all of the greatest show in the galaxy cast, and and I was there on that day. I was there that day. Oh, yeah, yeah, because it was that moment where you just sort of, you, you, you pray for these moments when that question, and you don't always think of something clever to say, but occasionally you, you're lucky enough to, you know, because we had to share one microphone because they for some reason. And so we were having to go, like, oh, okay, I think I might be able to answer that one. But when that guy said it was something like, you know, did you ever expect after all these years that all of you would be gathered here together like this? And I just said, yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, anyway, they laughed. So that was something. Um, yeah, no, it was a, that was a nice day. I think we've kind of moved into the area of kind of general conversation now, haven't we? So maybe that's a point where a point where we wrap up. We've been having a really good chat and thank you for sharing so much of your time with me this morning. I don't know if you have any um, parting thoughts about Secret Army before we uh, before we end it. Anything, any last things I've not thought to ask that you might want to share? Oh, yes, I completely forgot the little story from Secret Army. It was the main thing I was going to say, which was that when we, when I'm, when Peter Roms is up in this is in the that television centre on set after we've done the filming. Pretty sure we did the filming first, but I won't swear by it because on, I'm just remembering on my cousin Rachel, we did all the filming after we'd done all of them. So forgive me if I'm wrong. Anyway, there we are. There are me with the two other airmen up in the attic, mm-hmm. and I think he says, uh, "I've got a little." He said, "We're, we're talking about our domestic situations back at home," and he says. Uh, Something like, oh, well, I've got a little waffy waffy, a nice little whiffy waffy at home or something. And then he and he says, and what about you? To which I said, hushed, set, all the cameras still. And I said, well, <clears throat> I'm pregnant, clear as bell. And of course, there was a moment's silence and then the whole studio went up as it would, as it dawned on them. What, what the fuck did he just say? Because about three lines later, I have to say, my wife's pregnant. Right. So, so the line was supposed to be, I think, well, <clears throat> I'm married. And I, I said, well, <clears throat> I'm pregnant <laughs> to these, these sort of streetwise, savvy fellow airmen. So that was a good moment. <laughs> and also, I suppose I should say that I'm glad that Secret Army is less of a secret. Yeah, I think it's having a, a real revival now because it's being repeated on Talking Pictures and it was on BritBox and things like that. So a lot of people are revisiting it again. Yeah, I know that I, I was impressed with the whole, as I said, the, the confidence of it. The sort of, it seems to know what it is and everyone involved seems to be very of the show, you know, which is, uh, yeah, that's good. Well, thank you so much for your time and thank you for sharing all of your memories with me today. You've been great and uh, really, really enjoyable talking to you. Hi, AJ again here. I'd just like to say another huge thank you to Chris for generously giving up his time to be a guest on the show. 
Chris's chosen charity is the World Wildlife Fund, also known as the WWF. So if you've enjoyed this interview today, please do make a donation of any amount you wish. The website is wwf.org.uk and in the top right hand corner of their website you'll see the donate button. You can also donate by phone on 0800 035 5929. Thank you again for listening and we'll be back on Saturday the 3rd of February 